we are um, in the um, midwinter, and uh, you probably, some of you, will associate a, a snow uh, with some events, and maybe 10 years from now, you won't remember the exact year, but you'll say, back when we got so-and-so amount of snow, I remember something. Well, Isaiah, the prophet, had a vision and an auditory experience in the temple of the Lord, and he doesn't bother to tell us when the event exactly happened, except that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. And so our text today is Isaiah chapter 6 of that experience. But let me begin the sermon this way. Each year, on the first Thursday of February, a national prayer breakfast is held in Washington's Hilton Hotel Ballroom. A Methodist minister got the practice started back in the Eisenhower years in 1953. This year, there was a a little excitement beyond what was usual because Dr. Benjamin Carson spoke. He is a director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins University. And he spoke, if you will, if any of you have seen the video, Truth to Power. And if you've not seen the clip, you can simply do a search and I'm sure you will see it. Benjamin Carson is his name. Um, And uh, I was um, uh, totally supportive, in my own opinion, of what the good doctor said in making his appeal for some sanity and justice uh, in our day when public policy tends to run against Uh, individual freedom. All of his remarks were based on his convictions as an evangelical Christian, which gave him the courage to speak up the way he did, speak truth to power, if you will, to borrow a phrase from the left. How does one get such kind of courage to speak one's convictions? Most of us are pretty well domesticated, aren't we? We don't speak up very often, and uh, especially when the dominant culture and the political culture of our time refuses to deal with reality often and live in unreality. Christians, you see, must overcome some formidable hurdles in order to just simply speak what they believe to be a simple, logical truth. And so it's difficult to To do that, especially when you're not supported by our public institutions or the media or our colleges and universities, it's almost as if the role of the media today is to blackjack you back in line so that uh, you follow what is politically correct and not what is actually wise. Well, we can hardly do better than look at an Old Testament prophet to see where this kind of courage comes from. Someone has said, speak the courage of your convictions. Well, if you really have convictions, you probably will speak them. You'll find the courage some way if you have true convictions. Part of the problem is we don't have real convictions about things. But nonetheless, I want to look at the experience that this prophet had that gave him to ability to speak to a people that he knew would not listen to him And eventually would stand against him so much so that according to 
tradition, I don't know whether this is true or not, it's not in the scriptures, that Isaiah was that one mentioned in the book of Hebrews that was sawed asunder inside of a log. That's the way he met his end. What I want you to see is that the courage to speak truth and seek justice when the dominant culture prefers lies is rooted in a profound experience of who God is. And that was Isaiah's task. He was willing to speak truth to power and he was not willing to exchange, exchange a falsehood for the truth. T.S. Eliot said this about human beings. He says, man cannot stand too much reality. Think about that for a moment. Human beings cannot stand too much reality. And uh, in a time of warfare, I'm sure that there is a suppression mechanism that takes place, but in much of life in bad experiences. But somewhere along the line, especially in our public life, we have to come to terms with what is true and real and what is work, what is moral and what is immoral. But sometimes we are not willing. We live in a fallen world. And Paul says something very profound in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He talks about men exchanging the truth of God for a lie. You see, we, we don't really want to hear the truth about the way things are, about the way reality is. Now, reality is something that you must conform to. Reality, under certain conditions, it's obvious. If you go up a hill, you must come down. If you go down a hill, you probably have to go up. Uh, it is also true that um, if you jump off of a building and it's high enough, gravity will make sure that that'll be the last time you jump off a building. Now, that's a truth that you get because it's inexorable. It doesn't change. Well, there are certain moral truths like that, too. We, we just simply don't see their effect quite as soon. It's important that we understand, then, to live in reality, not only with respect to uh, the physical laws, but the moral laws that we find. Isaiah, then, <coughs> had the task <coughs> through this call to go and to speak to his generation, the truth of God. Where then did he get the courage? He got his courage through a profound spiritual experience that we find recorded in chapter 6 of his work. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, we know about when King Uzziah died. It was, we can narrow this down to about a six-year period. And so Isaiah is looking back and writing on this. In, in that year when he died, I saw the Lord. Now, this is what he doesn't forget. He forgets the year. But he doesn't forget the experience. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Now, seraphs means burning creatures. And in this case, the burning has to do with the holiness uh, of God in his pre their presence of, as they stood there. They had six wings. And notice, with two wings, they covered their face. Now, why did they cover their face? Because you cannot look upon God and live, not even the angels of heaven, due to his holiness 
And with two, they covered their feet. That means their nakedness. You don't enter into his presence naked or undone. And of course, we know as Christians that we enter into the presence of God through the righteousness of Christ, clothed in his righteousness. And with two, they were flying and they were calling to one another. This antiphonal calling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now notice his, his experience continues. <clears throat> At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah was in the temple and he had this extraordinary experience that some other prophets also had in the Old Testament, like Moses and Ezekiel and others. This extraordinary experience that shaped and molded his life. So much so that he would never in the same way fear human beings in the way that he feared God. Now, what does it mean, his experience? Well, his experience is absolutely amazing in that he got a sense and glimpse of who God was, not directly, but as an experience. It was both visionary and auditory. He got an experience of who God was. You know, very few people really, really come to grips with who God is in his absolute sovereignty and in his absolute holiness. Here, Isaiah saw that he was wholly other, set against everything in creation. And he has control and power over it entirely. And he is a being who created all things for his own glory, but that, that creation does not always. Human beings give that glory, which is rightly due to God. And Isaiah began to understand that God is a holy being. And that these angels, these seraphs that he saw, were speaking entirely to that holy being. Holy, 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 they cried. Now, there is a basis here in one sense for the Christian teaching and doctrine of the Trinity. While it is not explicitly taught here as such, here is one of those places in the Old Testament where you find the basis for the fuller revelation of who God is in the New Testament as the triune God. God is holy, thrice holy. No one can look upon him, not even the creatures in heaven. No one can stand in his presence undone, if you will, in their own rags and unrighteousness. And that profoundly changed his life. It reoriented him from, if you will, from his own little petty interests to see who God is and to the end for which he was created. It is also, of course, his call as a prophet. He's being called here as a prophet and he's being called to go speak to the people. But first of all, he also gains another kind of understanding, and that is knowledge of himself. I love the way John Calvin puts it in the Christian Institutes. And he says, all of Scripture gives us two kinds of knowledge, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. If you ever truly begin to see, just get an inkling of who God is, you begin to get self-knowledge as well. One of the reasons that we so deceive ourselves in our modern world and in our time and place is that we don't see God 
uh, clear enough to begin to see ourselves clear enough. Because the knowledge of ourselves as being created in the image of God is linked to who God is. And if we worship a false god or we suppress truth and reality, the fruit of that is, is that we will get back delusional thinking, unreasonable thinking. Have you ever noticed that you, you say to yourself sometimes about certain public policies, well, listen, this defies logic. Well, the truth is you're not wrong. Much of it does. Or in the educational system, you'll say as you look at things, this, this defies the way the world works and the way people are incentivized. This won't work. And you're right. But the truth is, we, we live in reality because we refuse to see who God is at the deepest reality. Now remember, everything else is derivative from God. In some sense, we only share in reality because he has made us and created us. He is that deep reality that we need to see and sense a glimpse of things. And when we do, it will change our lives. But the prophet then cries out, Woe, woe is me. He sees himself. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell with people who likewise are unclean and unrighteousness. He begins to, to break through the fog and to see things the way they are. He begins to look at himself and he says, in the light and in the sight of this holy God, I am deserving of death. Not to even stand in his presence or bow before him in his presence. And I like the way he says it. <coughs> Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. He not only saw his holiness, but began to see his glory in all things. And he began to perceive for the first time really in his life how undone he was and how undone and unclean his generation was. He saw clearly. What was his response? His response is that he cries out to God and the angel, one of the seraphs, goes and picks from the, the fire of the altar of God with tongs and puts it in his hand and comes and touches his lips as symbolic of his own cleansing and redemption. Isaiah receives God's mercy at that point in his life. And now he is ready to go forth with lips that have been purged, with a life that has been purged through the fire of God and his holiness to speak to his generation. Now, there's where you get courage. That kind of experience. The reason most of us don't have much courage is that we don't have much of experience with God. We, we uh, are too aware and too afraid of our circumstances in life than uh, we are of God. But not this prophet. And not the prophets who spoke for God in the Old Testament. They refuse to dwell in unreality. To, to bend to delusional thinking. They were going to tell things the way they were and what courage they had. 
You read Hebrews chapter 11, you begin to see the kind of courage that these people in the Old Testament uh, had in their service of God. The deepest fear on Isaiah's heart is what Jesus talks about in the New Testament. Fear not him who can destroy your body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This greater fear, if you will, will give you courage in life. He was undone. And so God cleanses him and gives him the courage to speak. In the 1930s, Rudolf Otto, that is a name I'm sure that's not a household word or a household name. He had the misfortune of never appearing in the New York Times or People magazine as far as I know. Rudolf Otto, who was he? He was a German theologian. And he wrote a classic in theology. I have read it. It's just a little book. It's not very big. Sometimes the greatest classics are not very big. And the name of that book in English is The Idea of the Holy. And there he says, Otto says, that there is a sense on every human being's heart, and he believed because they were created in the image of God, is some sense of holiness. Maybe not very profound, maybe suppressed, but it's there. And he says some people break through and have a true experience, not on their own, but they are given a vision of God. And he called this experience the numinous. It's a word he made up from Latin. The numinous. He doesn't quite know how to define it, but C.S. Lewis picks that up and tries to define that experience. And I always get this wrong. Is it the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? Have I got it right? I usually get one of those things out of, out of um, sync. And there, C.S. Lewis captures what Rudolph Otto is talking about. When Lucy looks into the face of Aslan... She goes away with an experience and she comes back to the other children and she tells them that she has seen Aslan and they say, you've seen Aslan? Yes. What was he like? And here C.S. Lewis tries to describe this experience called the numinous. And Lucy says, he was scary, but he was good. He was scary but he was good. When you experience God, you know one thing, that he, God is not to be trifled with. He is that Lord and Master over all. There is something, if you will, to use a politically incorrect term, terrifying about God and His holiness. But it is good because it roots you deeply in what is true and what is right and what is holy and what is just. Isaiah was a changed man. But he says, I also live in a generation of unclean lips. I didn't have the rest of the passage read today, but this passage actually goes on to verse 13. And in verse 13, we know now why he needed courage. He had to go to speak to his generation. And the truth is, they were not going to hear him. As a matter of fact, the more he spoke, the more they shut their ears and went, la, 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 la. You ever do that when you don't want to hear something? When I didn't want to hear something as a kid, I did that. You probably did too. 
And so that's what the modern generation is, people is doing when it comes to truth often. We stop our ears up with our fingers and make a sound so we can't hear anything. We don't want the truth. Or as one movie famously put it, you can't stand the truth. But Isaiah was going to be persecuted and suffer for telling the truth. He went to those people and he spoke what God gave him to spoke. Now here's another lesson I think you can get from this. Number one, sometimes we have to be judged before we will hear anything. Sometimes the worst has to happen for us to be awake to the consequences of our thinking and our doing. Sometimes a hammer must fall to break up the unreality, the delusional thinking that we are living in before we will ever hear. You know, we stand at a time and place in our culture where it is very difficult for simple, honest truths to break through uh, in our lives and in public policy. But sometimes, the only way that will happen, as C.S. Lewis again puts us, is that God must send enough pain or judgment that we might hear him. These people were standing in the shadow of a rising king in Assyria called Tidlach Pileser, who had captured Syria, had threatened the northern ten tribes, and was pressing up against Judah. And the hammer was about to fall. And Isaiah knew it. This was in the middle of the 8th century. What does God do? God sent judgment. And Israel finally heard. Now what does it take then to speak truth to power? To have the courage to stand up for what you know simply is true and good and right and what works and what doesn't work? What does it take for a Christian to stand up for life, for instance? To stand up for, yes, individual freedom. God created you and gave you enough freedom to preserve your life and no one can take that away from you. We need to have everybody to read John Locke's second treatise, the most influential work on the founders when it, come to write, when it came to writing our Constitution. God gave you enough freedom to be able to preserve your life and to encroach on that and to destroy that is again part of the culture of death. We need to speak the truth in our day. We are killing many of our young people through really not trying to educate them because there's too much special interest and power going on in the educational system to where the kid never gets educated. Now, not all children are going to submit to education. I'm not saying that. That's a utopian idea. But how we are shortchanging our children in much of our public policy, it's obviously evident. There's some simple ways to do things. You know, you, you, can, you can educate a child under an oak tree with someone who knows something and the other one who doesn't that they might be guided. It's a simple truth. You have to have some discipline to begin with and control. If you don't get that, you can spend all the money in the world and it won't work. 
speaking truth to power. Now, I was motivated to preach along these lines because uh, I'm reading a book that uh, I normally would not read, but uh, I decided for some reason when to begin to read far-fetched from my field. I'm reading Anne Applebaum's book, The Iron Curtain, subtitled The Crushing of Eastern Europe. And she describes, and I have not read much of it, but I've read enough to know how it's going and what happens. But she says in the introduction, within the space of five years, five years, that's not very long, is it? Eastern Europe went from relatively great freedom, just like the West, to living under a totalitarian system. Five years! Poland was transformed and became subjugated to the totalitarian Soviet Union. In 1923, the word totalitarianism in Italy became a charge against Bento Mussolini. He took it up. He liked it. It was a criticism. And two years later, he's using it. And someone has given a definition of totalitarianism, and let me, let, me, let me just give you that totalitarian definition. It's very simple. Quote, everything within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. You say, Pastor, why are you talking this way? Because I believe in freedom and justice, and we need that as Christians to carry on our activities, not just simply in our church, but in the public square and to take the gospel around the world. That's what it's at stake. We can't have the private sphere so overwhelmed that we can't wiggle our little finger. It's a moral issue, it's an issue of justice. And I hope and pray that Christians will begin to read and study and pray for our world. Freedom is a rare thing. Civilization in the world is a rare thing. Civilization is a thin crust upon a boiling, seething pot of disturbance. And it must be preserved. Just as we are charged to preserve the gospel and to pass it on from generation to generation, if we would have the freedom to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in every corner, in every place, we too must pray that God would be generous to us in the political realm. Now, am I saying we are in that condition? No. But I want you to know how fragile the world is and civilization is. And we must always pray. Do you know why the apostle tells us to pray for those in authority? That they might indeed be benevolent and just toward those that live under them and their authority. This is the right thing to do. 
And I have never failed to pray for those in authority. I do love this country and I love our freedom and I love what we have. But we must never take anything, anything for granted in a world where people would rather live a delusional life, a make-believe life, than to stare reality in the face. Would you have courage to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to stand up for those freedoms that are necessary to proclaim the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? I pray God will give you such an experience of himself that you will find the courage to speak truth to power. Amen.